So just before the show starts, we always want to try to add value to our listeners. So today we have a free offer for you. If you'd like to go to a URL, which I will share with you at the end of the show, uh, you will be able to download my free book called Unlocking the Hidden Customer Experience. So stay tuned after the show for the URL. Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So, Ryan, whenever I make a big purchase, I never, ever make the decision. If someone's trying to sell me something for the house, uh, I will never make the decision on the night. I will always say that I will sleep on it, no matter how large the discount is that I'm going to get. So, so what's what's happening there? Tell me what's happening there. Why am I doing that? Am I just being obstinate? Well, I, I know you a little bit, Colin, so I'm going to go ahead and say yes <laughs> on that. Um, but let's dig into to why you do that. So why why is that your rule? You've set this rule for yourself. I'm never going to make a, a big purchase without some cooling off time. Why do you do that? It's common. It's a common rule, right? A lot of us yeah. do that. Why? I, I mean, the main reason I do that is because um, it's a big decision. And I think I need to sleep on it and I don't want to be affected by the sales technique. So I know that I'm being sold to typically with with these larger purchases. Um, and I don't want to make a mistake, I guess, is the core of it, to be honest with you. Good. Right. Does that so make sense? It, it does. And it's actually a really powerful idea um, that people do this because you, you might think from a purely rational point of view, if this is the way we're going to make optimal decisions, you shouldn't need to do that because you, Colin, are perfectly capable of making big decisions. You've done it for most of your life. You, you, you know, done it successfully. You're capable of making big decisions. And yet you've set this rule for yourself that imposes some additional criteria. People who study decision making call rules like this that you apply to your own decision making heuristics. Um, and the idea is that sometimes we we don't want to make kind of decisions with either we don't want to make decisions where we walk through all the processes of making the decision. So we want to simplify things or sometimes we want to put guardrails on ourselves to kind of uh, act as checks on our typical decision making processes. And that's what a heuristic is. It's this simplified decision rule that we apply to a lot of different situations. Uh, these have been really important in the study of decision making. In fact, there's one entire school of psychology that's known as the heuristics and biases school. Wow. Uh, it's been a very, yeah, it's been a very, very prominent way of studying it. Um, our old friends Kahneman and Tversky, uh, Kahneman, yeah. the Nobel Prize winner, he was, was one of the founders of this heuristics and biases school along with his wow. research uh, friends. Cause it, it turns out that these are, re these provide tremendous insights into how people make decisions. And we're, I presume we're doing this just to to make life easier for ourselves, whatever that may actually mean. Uh, but I presume we're doing it to make it easier. I mean, that's one of the major um, motivations. We can think about it. So, so let's think about two classes of heuristics. So there are some heuristics that we impose on ourselves. So like this rule that you have about um, uh, always giving yourself some, some uh, cooling off time. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, I had a professor, a psychology professor who said that her heuristic was she would always buy 
the fish that was on sale when she went to the grocery store. So she didn't have to think uh-huh. about which type of fish she was going to buy every time she went to the store. She'd just go and whatever. And her logic was that was because that one had higher turnover. That would be the fresh, freshest fish available. Right. You should pause here to say I'm not sure I agree with her logic. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure that her justification <laughs> yeah. is true. And, and did, did she happen to have a day off the next day out of illness? <laughs> <laughs> See, that would be a good prediction. I think that be. that's the fish they wanted to offload. She was a psychology professor, not a business professor. Um, <laughs> but that was her rule, right? And we have rules like this all the time. Even brand loyalty in some cases might be seen of as a heuristic. You don't want to figure out which toothpaste is the best toothpaste every time you go shopping. So you develop a simple rule for yourself. I'm always going to buy Colgate. Uh, so so, so is another heuristic that I always do what my wife tells me. Is that, that a heuristic or is that, that is just the survival? That's the heuristic. That, that's, <laughs> did you ask if that was a survival mechanism? Yeah, I just wondered if yeah. it was a survival uh, technique. It can be both. Um, <laughs> but yes, that I mean, joking aside, that is in fact a heuristic. Like you don't have to go through all the difficult decision processes in, in those cases because you just turn the decision over to somebody else. That's yeah. a really powerful heuristic. So that's cool. one class of, of heuristics. These are rules that we make for ourselves. Uh, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just thinking about that because actually the reality is, is that my good lady wife, Lorraine, um, she makes uh, certain decisions and I make others. Yeah. So, you know, if it's a decision to do with technology, then Lorraine won't get involved. Um, if it's a decision to do with the house and how the house looks, I'm not very good at cushions and other soft things like that. Um, so she would be making those. Cushions so I guess, are in fact literally soft things. That is a, <laughs> that is a, a category soft of decisions that, that Colin for some reason just doesn't make good decisions about. Just soft yeah. things, cushions, pillows, yeah. All those types of things. Yeah, but I but I guess there are then obviously decisions that you're making that are, you know, if you're making a decision about what settee or couch that you're going to have, then that's going to be a joint decision. But I suppose I don't know. Couches are also soft, Colin. I think I wouldn't trust you if it was a hard chair. (laughs) Then yes. Uh, Having said that, I would defer to her on the color because (laughs) my my choice of color is awful. As anybody so, will see if they, they they see me speak at a conference, but there so you go. So this is uh, this is only tangentially related to uh, to the topic for today, but it's it's close enough and it's interesting enough that I'm going to tell you about it. Um, so what you just described there, where partners divide up decision making, that's a really common thing that people do in long term relationships, where we each kind of start to specialize. And there's some research that came out just recently um, uh, from one of the authors from the University of Texas, where they found that um, because one member of the partnership tends to, on average, handle more of the finances, yeah. uh, there's actually a growing gap in financial literacy that you see among long-term couples, wow. uh, where the person who handles all the finances, you know, continues to refine those skills, and the other person uses this heuristic where I'm going to let my partner take care of it. And they get worse at financial decision making over time. So, All right. There that, you go. That, that, that research could have been done about Lorraine and I, actually, because I don't even about know where my bank accounts are or yep. how much money we have in them. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. The same. Yeah. Maybe we'll have um, to do, do another podcast on, on that. That sounds fascinating. Oh, I, I think that it's good life insurance for me. I just I like to remind my wife of, of the things that I can do that uh, she has chosen not to. And 
if that list ever gets too short, then, you know, I'm not sure she'll need me anymore. So it's good insurance. And we, we talked about another heuristic a while ago, didn't we, with this uh, scarcity heuristic, which I thought was um, was particularly interesting. But we did. Uh, yes. With, with one that of was, your colleagues. That was when we had the fabulous Professor uh, Kelly Goldsmith on to talk about yeah. research on scarcity. And scarcity is another form of these heuristics, right? So uh, if we decide, well, we're not sure how valuable this thing is, but if it's scarce, if it's hard to get, if there aren't very many of them, we might then infer that it's valuable. That's a much easier way of making that assessment than to go through a full evaluation and try to determine its actual market value. We just kind of make this shortcut assessment. So there are all kinds of these heuristics that we use. Uh, some of them are self-imposed, things that we decide on ourselves. There's also, though, another class of heuristic that have been really interesting to psychologists, um, and those are heuristics that we all seem to have, and they seem to be hardwired into us, largely just based on the way that our brains operate. So we make certain types of judgments in a heuristic fashion because our brains are good at, at taking those shortcuts. So let me give you an example. This is one of my favorite uh, heuristics. So this is right. known as the evaluability, or excuse me, <laughs> the availability heuristic. Okay. Uh, so uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think there are more words in the English language that start with the letter R or that have R as the third letter? Mm, start with the letter R. So that's the most common answer. Um, it's actually... Do I win a prize? No, because you're wrong. Um, so it's the <laughs> damn. You, that you always prize, happens to me. You win the prize <laughs> of being human along with the rest of us. So <laughs> the answer is that it's uh, more letters that are more words that have R as the third letter, and in fact, it's not even close. It's like right. I forget the number. It's like two or three times as many words. Wow. But the reason that we all think that it's words that start with the letter R is because of the way that our mind works. So. In memory, we have words kind of indexed by the first letter of the word. So if you need to think of uh, words that start with an R, that's relatively easy, right? We, we can come up with words like that. Our memories are not indexed for coming up with words that have R as the third letter. Uh, so that right. is very, very difficult to do. Because one of those things was easy and one of those things was difficult, we make the judgment that the easy thing was probably more likely or more common, in this case, more common, because it's easy for us to come up with examples of it. That's okay. the availability heuristic. So okay. we use this all the time. It is super common. Uh, we try to come up with it, things that are easy for us to imagine um, or easy for us to remember, we think are more likely or more probable. And this leads to all kinds of bias judgments. So, so let me ask you a question. Um, so the couple of weeks ago, we were redesigning a customer experience for a insurance company. And we were having a debate about all this type of stuff. And one of the things I mentioned was the fact that uh, have you ever noticed when you go to buy a new car, then there's suddenly lots and lots of those cars on the road? You know, suddenly you see see more of the, the car that you were just about you're going to go and buy than you ever did before. Yeah. So I presume that's that's the same thing. 
Yeah, it's, it's a similar phenomenon, right? So uh, I've heard this also from uh, women who are engaged or about to be engaged. They suddenly notice um, engagement rings everywhere because this is what they're thinking about and it's top of mind. This idea that certain things are more accessible to us at some times than at other times um, is, is a key point in the availability heuristic. So uh, where this might apply to judgment is we've all been in the situation where we're driving down the, the freeway kind of speeding along, and then you pass a, a really horrific wreck uh, off to the side of the road. And then what happens after that? Well, for most of us, we drive very cautiously for the next several miles. Um, the fact that this, uh, this idea of crashing your car and dying in a wreck is now much more salient. It's much easier for us to imagine. Um, it's much more vivid that makes it feel to us like there's a greater likelihood that we too could die in a crash. And that then affects our behavior because right. th this idea is more accessible within a few miles that the vividness starts to fade. That idea kind of goes back to the background and we start driving like maniacs again because we're, we're back now to thinking that this is a very low probability event. Right. And, and therefore, I presume things like social proofing comes in there as well. So, in other words, if you see lots of things that, you know, and therefore you're now starting to make a decision that is around, uh, I'm seeing them, therefore lots of people have got them, therefore uh, this makes it more, it gives it some credibility, gives it some um, weight that, uh, it's not just me that's buying this one thing. Does yeah, so I, we make all kinds of consumer judgments this way. So um, if I were to ask you how reliable are Hondas, one of the ways that you could answer that question are to think back through your own experiences. How easy is it for me to remember hearing stories of people who have a Honda and it breaks down or having seen Hondas broken down on the side of the road? If it's easy for me to remember those things, then I form the opinion that Honda is not a very reliable brand. If it's hard for me to remember those things, then I form the opinion that Honda is reliable. Right. What, what, what that means is that if there's a particularly vivid story, so if um, I think it was Toyota several years ago that had these, um, was getting all this terrible press about the, the gas pedals getting stuck um, in their cars, and so it was causing all these accidents, because it was reported so much, these stories of Toyotas being dangerous cars became very vivid and easy for people to remember. And right. so as a result, people, you know, they damaged the brand of Toyota. It, it turned out much later when they actually did the studies, it was not an actual problem. <laughs> the gas pedals were not getting stuck. People sure. were accidentally slamming on the gas instead of the brake and then blaming it on the car. And they were able to prove this. But by that point, the damage had kind of already been done. Sure. Uh, People assumed that it was terrible and, and, um, and it damaged the brand in that way. So if your customers are having experiences that are infrequent, but that are very vivid, very memorable, um, very easy to recent, very easy to communicate, uh, that's really going to damage your brand a lot because those are the things that will pop up to mind when people are trying to think about uh, your brand or your customer experience. Training your frontline team on how to create memories in your customers by evoking their emotions. Beyond Philosophy's unique and proven training methodology, Memory Maker Training. 
Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. So getting back to getting more back to the heuristics, um, heuristics are a rule of thumb, effectively. Yes. They, they enable you to go, this is, you know, here's a shortcut. This is what I'm always, always going to do. And I just just thinking and tying those things together that we were just talking about. So it could be I will only ever buy a product after I've read reviews. So if I'm going on Amazon, I will only buy a product if it's got, you know, a thousand reviews and it's at four stars. That's a heuristic. Yeah. And, and think about what that does. That simplifies your decision. Right. Yeah. So now you can eliminate all these uh, options that don't meet those criteria. And that dramatically reduces the number of options you have to consider. And that simplifies your decision making. Now, there may be a hidden gem in there where there's this new product that's fantastic. And if you really did your digging, you might discover that even though it only had 20 reviews, it's just really great and it's the best match for you. But because you've simplified your decision making, you're never going to find that option. And you do yeah. it because it makes your life a lot easier and you consider that it's not worth it to, to do it otherwise. So when I was doing homework for this podcast, one of the ones I came up with that I read about, which I thought was quite a good one, was uh, educated guess, which yeah. apparently is a heuristic that allows people to reach a conclusion conclusion without exhaustive research. So That's right. you consider what's happened in the past and then you go, well, this is what I did last time, so I'm going to do this again this time. Yeah, um, we don't think of it as a heuristic, but it is, because what's the alternative to an educated guess? Well, that's like a fully informed, rational decision. We actually do all the work and sure. figure out exactly what it is, or we do the best that we can with the information that we can acquire quickly right? and, uh, and move on from there. So it simplifies things. Trial and error is another heuristic, right? So we're not going right. to fully educate ourselves and, and exhaustively figure out, we're just going to try some things and, and see what works and, and go with that. So we use heuristics all the time. Um, and it's really helpful if you can figure out what your what heuristics your customers are using, especially when they're evaluating you. So what are they doing when they evaluate your experience? Sometimes it's in line with rational decision-making. Sometimes it's not. Um, so let me give you another example of something. And again, I'm, I'm hoping this that this helps people think about their their uh, experiences and how they design their experiences. So we were doing some work in uh, Washington, D.C., and I, I live in Sarasota in Florida. Uh, and one of the guys uh, on the team um, was also working with us and he lived in Tampa. Now, why is this important? Because uh, I flew up to I flew up to Washington, um, met him at the uh, met him at the clients, and we were just chatting away. Um, and he said um, he, uh, he said, "Oh, how did you fly up?" And I I flew up Delta, um, and I always fly Delta because and this is comes back to the title of this podcast and the title of our last book, the Intuitive Customer. I intuitively book. Delta. I don't think about it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just always book it. Uh, he had flown up from Tampa, and apparently there's a direct flight from um, on Southwest 
from Tampa to Washington. Uh, so, you know, he took like four hours less traveling. And, and I, because I just used, I guess, that heuristic yeah. um, uh, of that rule of thumb. Well, I'm just going to fly Delta because that's what I always do. Um, I, you know, I ended up um, uh, having to travel a, a lot for having to take a lot more time to travel. So I guess that's that's where you're starting to get a few of these things tying together in that's terms right. of intuitive in making an intuitive decision and a heuristic as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think that illustrates very nicely. You have that heuristic to always just go ahead and fly Delta because you know that most of the time that's going to be the best decision for you. Um, yeah. And, you you know, you'll get rewards on the loyalty program and, um, you know, you'll get the benefits of the status you've acquired and Delta has enough uh, reasonable flights to the places you want to go that it's not worth the, the cost to you in terms of time and effort to, to look elsewhere. So that's your heuristic and it works most of the time, but heuristics are not perfect. And every once in a while, you're going to apply the heuristic and it's going to lead to a bad decision. But my guess is you still don't check Southwest when you want to fly places. You still have that heuristic because it's usually just fine. It usually works just fine for you. Yeah, no, you're, you're you're totally right. Unless I'm flying to Washington now, because that's burnt on my memory. Because now you remember. No. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you one more example. So this one, um, if you can figure out what heuristics people use, it can provide you with advantages in terms of of how you engage with them and and anticipate how to make your customer experience better. Um, you you've read being um, being British, I assume, I assume they revoke your your um, citizenship if you don't. But you read the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, they, now the answer is 42, whatever it is. Good. The life, the universe and everything. That's right. Um, so one of the, the early bits of wisdom that um, the main character gets when he becomes a space hitchhiker um, is that he should always have a towel on him. Um, no matter what else you have. Uh, as you care, and you should always have a towel. And the, Douglas Adams gives this fantastic list of reasons why. He says that if you have a towel, people will assume about you that you've got the rest of your life put together and will gladly lend you any number of things. Like you can't be a vagabond <laughs> if you've got a towel on you. And so they'll let you, you know, sleep at their place. They'll uh, they'll give you food. They'll loan you money. Like they'll do all these wonderful things for you. So he's proposing that we live in a universe where people have this heuristic that anybody who's got a towel on them is a pretty put together fellow. Um, so if you un if you know what the heuristics your customers are using that are like that, you know, like any place that's got mints on the counter is a pretty upscale establishment and, and everything else is going to be going to be fine about it. If you can figure out what those heuristics are. You can have tremendous advantage by, by kind of shortcutting the, the typical decision making process and going straight to the stuff that um, that people are making their decisions on anyway. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, the implications of this is from a custom from a designing of an experience perspective, uh, I guess you're also talking here uh, about you know and it's an interesting thought really that you know heuristic is like a mini habit isn't it in in the yeah. sense of i always do this so just building on what you were saying if you if you can find out what your customers are always doing um and understand sort of the rationale for why they're doing it um then it helps you um it helps you in that that decision making and moreover the design 
of the experience that you're that you're trying to you're trying to deliver. Yeah, I mean, I, we could get into some of the the psychological distinctions between habits and heuristics, but a lot of these are going to point in the same direction. And so, if you're managing a customer experience, it kind of doesn't matter whether it's a habit or a heuristic. Um, can you figure out what they are? Uh, can you anticipate what your customers are going to be doing habitually or or heuristically? Uh, if you can, you're going to be in fantastic shape. Because again, you might be optimizing on the wrong things uh, if you don't understand the way people are actually making their decisions instead of the way they should hypothetically be making their decisions. And and this is an area I think. And and again, we've we've talked about this in the past, but uh, and we talked about this in fact in a podcast on uh, Facebook. Um, but I think the future of customer experience lies in uh, understanding the data at a much deeper level. So I'm just looking at data and looking for behaviors within the data. And I don't see organizations doing that at all. Yeah. Um, you know, looking from a, a looking at the data of what the customer's doing, when they're doing it, how, how often they're doing it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But looking it through the lens of behavioral economics, uh, I don't see organizations doing that at all. And I think that's a real big differentiator, uh, going forward. Absolutely. Any other last bits of advice you want to give before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, start with yourself. So figure out what are the rules of thumb that you're using. How do you simplify your own decisions? Once you learn about this concept, it'll shock you um, just how often this happens. And once you see it in yourself, you can start to see it um, all around you in the way that that the news covers things and the, the way that people gauge the, the likelihood of unlikely events like a terrorist attack based on how vivid it is, how easy it is to imagine um, these, these are all around us. They're, it's a really powerful psychological idea um, and can give you a real advantage if you can figure out uh, what's going on. Yeah. And, and if you just Google heuristics, you'll find 50 million of them. Um, yeah. So, you know, the active area of research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think the key thing that I would I would sort of reinforce is there's never one thing that's happening. There's a multitude of things that's happening. And it's the classic stuff of understanding what's happening today with your customers in your, when you, what we would call the as is experience, what's happening with your, your customers today, but then going, how can we use these heuristics for designing the, the new, uh, the new experience? So, Okay, well, thanks very much for everyone listening uh, this week. Um, we hope to that you'll join us next week. If you've got any suggestions of, of what you would like us to cover, any questions you'd like us to cover, then please don't hesitate to contact us. Um, just drop us an email at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Um, just shout out any question you've got, and we'll uh, also give you a mention on the podcast. Thanks very much and look forward to um, next week's episode. Cheers. Bye, everybody. So this is Colin. I promise to be back with you at the end of the show. If you want to undertake our self-assessment and get a free report, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash assessment. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash assessment. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to 
find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>